Today on the Priority Queue, 5G, as in the much lauded successor to 4G, a variety of spectrum is proposed to address many use cases, so 5G isn't just any one thing. 5G's in testing now. It's going to see production rollouts over the next several years, which brings us to our question today. Is 5G going to help with the rural broadband problem? Uh, I am Ethan Banks, at EC Banks on Twitter. This is the Packet Pushers podcast, at Packet Pushers. And 5G as a rural broadband problem, that's interesting to me who lives in a very underserved uh, market where there are limited broadband choices and I have been hopeful that 5G might help with rural broadband. So to help us understand the role that 5G will play in rural broadband internet access is Alex Marcham. Alex, welcome to the Priority Queue. Please introduce yourself to the Packet Pushers audience. So hi, Ethan. Um, I'm Alex, a network engineer by training. Um, I like to look deep into technology in general, mainly focused on networking and uh, the computation side of things. Um, so I'm researching and writing about the future of networking, also including 5G, on my own site, which is networkarchitecture2020.com. Yes, you just launched it. It's a lovely site. I've subscribed already and have uh, been retweeting uh, some of your posts. Good stuff at networkarchitecture2020.com. Um, now, Alex, I made the point in the intro that 5G isn't any one thing, that there's actually a swath of technology that comes under the 5G heading. It's got a variety of purposes. So can you, at a high level, kind of set that stage for us? Yeah. So when we primarily talk about 5G, I think a lot of the focus is on the mobile side and particularly around the wireless um, infra infrastructure that uh, supports the mobile applications. So just taking it from a, taking 5G from a wireless perspective to date, um, a lot of the focus has been on millimeter wave frequencies, um, which are the frequencies um, in the radio spectrum from 30 gigahertz to 300 gigahertz. Um, for all the uh, wireless nerds out there, I realize that technically 28 gigahertz is not within this range, but if you've read any 5G articles to date, you will see that it's basically being lumped into that. So Yeah, the 28G, even though, okay, so 30 is like the bottom limit for it technically to be millimeter wave, but they're, they're throwing 28 gigahertz in there anyway. Yeah, the marketing people have uh, won this particular battle. Got it. <laughs> okay. So um, we're, we're typically looking for 5G from the millimeter wave side of things um, at 28 gigahertz, um, 39 gigahertz, and also a lot of activity around 60 gigahertz. So there's still a lot of development going on in lower frequencies, the frequencies that we typically use today for things like Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and LTE. I typically refer to those as low-band 5G, so things below the 6 gigahertz range. 2.4 gig and, uh, and 5.0 gigahertz that we normally think of as Wi-Fi and Bluetooth consumers, for example. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, so we got a lot of different bands here, uh, the, what you would call the low-band stuff, now and the millimeter wave stuff, 28G, 39, and 60 uh, and again, all being used for different things. Uh, of these uh, wavelengths and tech, which of these do you think might be useful for broadband internet? So it's an, it's an interesting question because really all of these have their own kind of unique use case. So we'll get into a little bit of why that is from a, a physical perspective um, shortly. But um, it's very interesting because from a, a low band perspective, if you think of something like LTE today, um, you know, a lot of um, LTE networks in the US, for example, are using 700 megahertz, which you can see is a much lower spectrum than um, some of the millimeter wave ones we're talking about. So that will still be important to give you a wide geographic area of coverage for broadband. And then basically the millimeter wave technologies will be more important for providing higher throughputs at 
shorter distances. So they require you know different deployment models, different business cases, different network architectures, but they definitely all have a use for delivering broadband internet, whether fixed or mobile. Ah, so we could use any of them theoretically. Now, I think some of these don't some of these clobber licensed spectrum and isn't there or i guess maybe there's a concern here about licensed versus unlicensed spectrum and how that might impact usefulness yeah so that's a very interesting point um so we're we're pretty familiar with the 2.5 gigahertz and you know principally the 5.8 or you know 5.x gigahertz bands depending on where you live in the world um being unlicensed essentially you know you don't need to get a license from the fcc or your local regulatory body if you don't live in the us for instance you know anatel in brazil or ofcom in the uk if you want to operate a new Wi-Fi access point, let's say in 2.4 or 5 gigahertz, you can just freely operate that as long as your equipment is uh, abiding by the legal limits, which all equipment sold does. But where the bands that we have here, 28 and 39 gigahertz, differ is that these are licensed bands. So typically a carrier, um, think of an AT&T or a Verizon or a, you know, a British telecom, will be purchasing that license to use that spectrum. Yeah, there's bidding for spectrum, I think, in the US. Uh, the, the, the carriers will go up and say, okay, this is going to be ours. And then there's some bidding for it and it's, it's sold off for their use exclusively, if I understand that. Right. Yeah. So the the, the prices and um, you know the uh, range of geographic area that each one of those licenses covers differs greatly depending on the band. Um, for instance, in the 28 gigahertz band case, um, the FCC recently changed the rules such that um, it's now licensed on a per county basis. Um, so the carriers are now buying up um, the licenses for 28 gigahertz, basically county by county across the whole country, because it's a shorter range than, for instance, uh, 700 megahertz. There was an auction a couple of years back that raised um, many, many billions of dollars for the FCC um, because you could cover, you know, um, potentially hundreds of kilometers with um, 700 megahertz network coverage, as opposed to the much shorter range of the 28 gigahertz stuff. 39 gigahertz is also licensed, similar kind of setup to 28 gigahertz. But um, interestingly, 60 gigahertz, because it's so short range, is unlicensed. Okay. You were talking about short ranges there. I think that's that's going to factor in on the ultimate point of our discussion about rural broadband. But uh, but let's – okay. Well, let's, let's set this up with a technical question then. I, I want to understand or hear you explain how the frequency of the signal uh, coupled with the channel width of the signal translates into bandwidth. Okay, um, so let's let's just look at a starting point at the channel width um, side of things. So, if we look at the two point four gigahertz band that we used for wi- Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, you know, etc. In the U.S., that's hundred megahertz wide, essentially. Um, Wi-Fi is allowed to use a number of forty megahertz channels within that hundred megahertz. Some overlapping, some non-overlapping. Like one, six, and eleven. If you're looking at a, at a Wi-Fi analyzer that's showing you um, which channel, you'll see it. Like, uh, like, be a little, a little plateau with the, the the channel in the center point, and then coverage on either side of that channel. Yes, that's that's absolutely right. So you can fit, um, you know, a certain number of non-overlapping channels within that band. Um, you could put the the center frequency of each channel such that, as you said, you have a kind of a. If you look at it on a spectrum analyzer, you have a plateau at the top, and then you have these what are called kind of skirts coming down either side. And then a non-overlapping channel would be one that obviously doesn't overlap um, the skirts or the main peak of the signal with another channel operating in the same band. So in the 5.8 gigahertz band, it's about 150 megahertz wide. You can see that's a considerable size improvement over 2.4 gigahertz. But um, as we get into the 60 gigahertz band, that entire band in the US, as of their most recent uh, rule changing by the FCC, is actually 14 gigahertz wide. It's a 
ridiculously large band. Um, and again, when you're talking about the you know the width here, we're talking about the entirety of that the spectrum and that range that's been allocated for communications, not an individual channel, but we're just about the entire width that's available. Like at 60 gigahertz, you've got a 14 gigahertz wide uh, amount of spectrum that you can work with to carve absolutely. up into channels. Yes, absolutely. So the, the way I kind of think about this is, um, if you think about a road, let's say you have a you know a four lane road, that would be your total width of the band. But then you, as a as a driver, can only use one of those lanes at a given point in time. So each one of those lanes is your channel, and the whole width of that road, you know, the cumulative width of all of the lanes is the width of the band. If that makes sense. Yeah, I get it. So the twenty eight gigahertz band is eight hundred and fifty megahertz wide. Um, so you can see even the the kind of lower end of the millimeter wave spectrum potentially gives you much, much wider um, available spectrum than the low band um, frequencies that we're used to. So why does it matter how wide a channel or a given band is? So the usefulness of having a wide band, which you could then fit many channels into, is that you could potentially fit um, a larger number of non-overlapping and therefore, in theory, non-interfering users in that same band, in that same area, at the same time. So that increases the amount of scalability that you're able to get out of that spectrum in a given area. So the reason why it's interesting to have, for the purposes of increasing bandwidth, a wider channel within that band is that um, we typically measure today the efficiency of a wireless network in the terms of um, the number of bits per second per hertz that it's able to transmit and receive successfully. So you can imagine if you had a network that is capable of five bits per second per hertz and you had a one hertz bandwidth, you'll be putting out a maximum of five bits per second throughput. So you can you know, very easily see that if you had, say, a 10 hertz channel, you'll be able to do 50. And then it multiplies up depending on the amount of um, spectrum that you have available, essentially, for a given channel. So what governs how many bits per second I can send through uh, a given hertz worth of bandwidth? Is that an encoding uh, issue or...? Yeah, so this is primarily down to the uh, modulation and coding scheme that's being used on that uh, wireless connection, which is affected by many things from um, noise inside the radio device to distance through interference. But um, there's there's a there's a fairly linear relationship between um, you could have a very robust uh, modulation mode, um, which provides, say, a fairly low data rate, um, but is very robust to interference or long distances or, you know, uh, signal interference, poor, poor um, conditions in any, any way in the radio spectrum. Or you could have less robust but higher throughput uh, modulation modes kind of up the, up the higher end of the scale in terms of their fragility. Okay, so we've got the amount of bits I can send per hertz, and then so then the, the more hertz I have, the wider the channel, then the more um, pipe I've got, the bigger the lane is that I can send mm-hmm. traffic down. Okay, so now we could just go back again to 2.4, 5.8, 60, 28, all carved up into different channels. I, I can see now how this is governing uh, how much data I can send through because of the width of the channels and the amount of data I could put through it. There's some very high bandwidth or very high data rates that I could theoretically achieve in these um, uh, 28 and 60 gigahertz bands. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. I remember back from the days of messing around with my ICOM radio receiver. I, I, I never got my ham license, but I, I always was a listener, active shortwave listener. This ICOM radio receiver that I had could handle up to 1.3 gigahertz. And I noticed that the higher the frequency, the more limited the range. And so the type of comms that I could receive by the radio was was different. So w- the higher up I got, I was receiving you know, local police band and uh, you know maybe a cab company, you know, things where it was you know, very regional, very isolated compared to the shortwave transmissions, for example, way down in, say, the 1.6 to 30 megahertz range. They could go very long distances, assuming a little help from the ionosphere. So uh, <laughs> I think I kind of know the answer from some of the stuff you said earlier, but, uh, but, but how does this impact 5G? Because some of the frequencies we're talking about are extremely high. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because this this really drives very different deployment models, really depending on that frequency and that that corresponding wavelength. So just to kind of kind of give it, I suppose, a little bit of a background on um, why you would potentially have uh, prefer one uh, frequency over another, ignoring all aspects that we talked about in terms of the available channel widths and the bandwidths. If you purely had, say, ten megahertz of two point four gigahertz spectrum, and you had ten megahertz of sixty gigahertz spectrum, so Essentially, when we transmit a wireless signal at a certain power or amplitude, um, as it travels through the air, attenuation, which in the radio world we measure in dB per kilometer, um, attenuation of the signal occurs, which reduces its power. So basically, as the signal propagates through the air from transmitter to receiver, it's losing energy. So this ultimately dictates the range that's achievable with the transmission. It needs to reach the receiver with enough power so that the receiver can properly decode it into the correct data. And obviously, the further away you are, the more robust modulation mode you need. It's much harder for a receiver to decode, say, a 256 QAM, which is a quite a high-order modulation mode, very high data rate signal, as it does to decode, say, a BPSK uh, transmission, which is much lower data rate, but considerably more robust. So there's a pretty solid correlation between attenuation and frequency. So, okay, so attenuation and, and, and frequency, as in the higher the frequency, the more subject that signal is to being attenuated, as in losing energy, the further it goes? Yes, yes. And then uh, and then obstacles are going to impact that in, in what way? Like, like if I've got a wall in the way or... Like I know, you know, back in the days of doing wireless site surveys, uh, I remember a site that was it was a library that had metal shelving in one area, and we had great coverage through most of the library until we got to that metal shelving area, and it just so happened to attenuate the signal so strongly that we had to reconsider where to put access points and uh, and so on uh, in that area. So I'm, I'm, you know, my point being, I know certain substances seem to really impact uh, attenuation where you feel it more strongly than others. In my mm-hmm. house here, which is uh, stick frame construction, sheetrock, uh, some insulation, and uh, and wooden uh, structure, it's not bad. I can go a long ways and still have well, two point four coverage is stronger, is better than five But but again, if I have you know metal in the way, it seems to be a much bigger deal. So can, mm-hmm. can, can you so so put all those things together? So frequency is a challenge for attenuation just generally. And as soon as I start sticking things in the middle of the signal, it affects attenuation e- even more as I'm just, this is just my personal experience. So, you know, as you're guiding us through this, include the, the physics of that too. Sure. So just to, just to kind of cover off the why a higher frequency is at a basic level attenuated more, which then goes into, um, so I'm talking more about propagation at the moment, which I'm considering just to be um, the distance that a radio wave will just travel through the air. For, essentially. Forgetting about obstacles. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then I'll 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 cover the the kind of material penetration bit a little bit um, as I as I go along as well. But just from a from a physics standpoint, um, basically the higher the frequency of the photons that we're basically exciting to transmit the electromagnetic wave, basically the higher their energy, the increased chance that they will interact with something as they travel. So even you know um, things in the air, um, just the atmosphere. Um, before you even get to obstructions, um, each one of those interactions that occurs at a higher chance, the higher the frequency, um, basically robs the signal of energy as it's transmitting. Um, so, interestingly, the relationship of the frequency to the wavelength um, is that we call it millimeter wave because at frequencies 28 gigahertz or above, the wavelengths are actually below um, 10 millimeters in length. If you compare that to your 2.4 gigahertz network wavelength, um, a 2.4 gigahertz signal is typically around 14 centimeters long in terms of its mm -hmm. wavelength, and a 5 gigahertz um, signal is around 6 centimeters long. So you can imagine just from that physical size difference, um, that gives you a better idea of the uh, the likely impact from um, atmospheric attenuation than just you know just looking at the the gigahertz number. The longer the, the the longer the wave, the um, the less attenuation you're going to experience. You've just got you you've got a more uh, higher crest and trough uh, as that wave is, is moving through the air. You probably wouldn't have a higher crest and trough, as that would be that would really be due to the amplitude of the wave rather than the oh, frequency. Right, right, right. But you 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 just you simply have, from a physics standpoint, less less likelihood that the uh, photons will interact with um, things in the atmosphere and lose their energy as they're being transmitted. Because as they move up and down, there's, um, there's, there's just less for them to be hitting along the way, whereas if the wave is uh, much tighter, there's more chance it's going to be hitting things. I'm waving my arms in the air. I was going, <laughs> you're making big waves, and now I'm making little tiny ones. You got to do the wave sign with your with your it's, finger. That's what that's I end right. up doing. <laughs> okay, um, but pretty much, yeah. So one one interesting thing to note about this is, whilst I, you know, from a from a basic standpoint, I like to think of it as a pretty linear relationship of um, uh, wavelength or frequency versus attenuation. It's not completely linear. Um, you do see some interesting things. For instance, at the sixty gigahertz band that we talked about. Um, you'll see that something at 50 gigahertz will have higher range than a 60 gigahertz signal, but also something at 70 gigahertz will end up having a higher range than an otherwise identical signal at 60 gigahertz, which you would think would be counterintuitive. One of the reasons for that is in the 60 gigahertz band from 57 to around 64 gigahertz is very badly affected by just oxygen in the atmosphere. The oxygen content in the air as, it, uh, as the wave interacts with it just reacts with that radio frequency more than it does at 50 or 70 gigahertz and dramatically reduces the range. So although it's it's you know, mostly a linear relationship, um, there are some some gotchas in there as you, uh, particularly as you go up in frequency, you see some uh, funny effects like that. Rain fade is also another example, particularly for outdoor, I mean, hopefully for outdoor, unless you've got a very big uh, roof leak, but uh, rain fade is also uh, an issue uh, that we see at various frequencies um, that affect some frequencies a lot more than others as the size of the waves um, gets to a certain, um, you know, physical mm size equivalence with an actual raindrop as it falls. You're reminding um, me of, of an outdoor site survey I, I did, this, this again goes back some years, but we were trying to make a, a bridge, a point to point bridge connection, um, some with some miles between and, uh, and trees were a problem where, uh, they said it was, I believe it was late fall. A lot of leaves had fallen. They said, we got the signal through it's marginal, but as soon as these, these trees leaf out, no good, this is not going to mm -hmm. work out for you guys. 
So it's yeah. not just rain, but also um, uh, trees and stuff uh, getting in the way. Yeah, pretty much any any uh, you know physical obstruction, and then you know we, we were talking a bit about um, you know material penetration and things like mm. that as well. So just kind of coming back to that, you probably noticed that a sheet of a sheet of metal tends to attenuate a wireless signal pretty well. I mean that's really the foundation of you know a Faraday cage, which would be a device intended to block out all outside radio transmissions. So part of that is due to the density of the material. It's very material dependent as to which frequencies will um, penetrate through a given material and which won't at which power levels. But uh, as a general rule, higher frequencies will fail to penetrate materials that lower frequencies can. Um, for instance, with your point-to-point bridge example, I'm betting that uh, at least one of the suggestions, maybe the eventual solution, was to either um, install a lower uh, frequency radio link or possibly try and bump up the power. So either one of those are potential solutions, but you know, in general, um, a high frequency signal, particularly one of the millimeter wave ones, is much more likely to actually bounce and reflect than it is to actually penetrate. For instance, like a a 700 megahertz signal like we would use today for LTE um, is really well suited to penetrating through trees, through, you know, the walls of your house, etc., which is why you can get, you know, um, cellular coverage almost anywhere you are. Whereas, um, you know, for instance, the scanners um, in the airport that you go through are actually millimeter wave scanners, and they actually use that reflective property of the millimeter waves to essentially, like a radar, to bounce off you and image, um, you know, your your body. Um, so if you were to send a millimeter wave signal at a given material, often you'll get a, a reflection rather than, you know, a, a penetration. Oh, that's interesting. I'll just park there just for a second. On the, uh, that airport scanner example, since I go through them fairly often, the, the, what's happening again is the signals are, are bouncing off of uh, me. And, uh, and based on how well it's reflecting, they can determine if I've got something in my pocket or you know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, so you can you can make a determination. It's basically a radar system, a kind of closed you know a closed loop radar system. You can you can make a reasonable determination of you know based on say the density of something. If someone's got you know a steel plate in their arm, or if they've got something in their pocket, or mm. you know something like that. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Now I hate to ask because we've already talked about low bandwidth, and you've talked a lot about the properties of these signals. The uh, the higher up in the spectrum we go. But how far could millimeter wave 5G actually travel? Or, or let's put another way, what's the effective radius of a cell? Okay, so this is, uh, this is an interesting one. So just to start off as a kind of a baseline, in the kind of low band frequencies, as I would call them, particularly things like 700 megahertz, it wouldn't be impossible at all to have, say, a uh, you know, traditional macro cell radius of something like 40 miles, potentially. The trade-off being I don't have the carrying capacity i can't i mean that's not yes, broadband exactly. as such right but just just to set the scene in terms of a um uh signal propagation and then going into a network architecture kind of standpoint mm. on it you're, you're mm-hmm. entirely correct in that you know by creating a cell of that size even if your fr- frequency is low enough to enable that you're essentially creating a giant you know almost broadcast domain you know a shared shared spectrum um segment essentially um much like a giant shared lan um, which is, you know, as you know, when you get a high number of users on it, not conducive to high throughput and good user experience, right? So you have, you're correct, you have the same trade-off there. But just to just to compare that potential coverage versus what we can get with these millimeter wave um, frequencies. So a 60 gigahertz system, we typically look at um, ranges below one kilometer, Ooh. which is, yeah, as you can as you can imagine, 
um, requires a much different deployment model than we're used to today with more of a macro coverage type, you know, 4G technologies. So, um, so one kilometer of, a, of effective distance, meaning the signal hasn't attenuated too much. I'm, I'm a kilometer away and I'm still getting decent throughput at the 60 gigahertz range. Yeah, I would I would put one kilometer with a with a reasonable system. Um, you could probably expect, obviously, barring you know various signal conditions and things like this, the big asterisks that I have to put next to uh, any uh, prediction of bandwidth for a wireless system, um, assuming good signal conditions. You know, you could be looking at potentially um, gigabit um, results, possibly probably around one point seven gigabit potentially um, with a sixty gigahertz system at that range. So, what about twenty eight? In theory, I should be able to go further, right? Yeah. So in theory, you can put a 28 gigahertz um, multipoint, as we call it, um, system. But think of like a star topology, basically, when I say a multipoint system. What I would predict for, for those is typically five kilometers or below, um, being able to deliver you know, hundreds of megabits or up to a gigabit um, speed to an end device. One important thing just for the for the uh, the radio side of things and the antenna side of things um, for these is that um, both of those um, cell radiuses or radii, I suppose, um, are very dependent on having a good beamforming antenna. Um, you may have seen some beamforming technology mentioned when we talk about things like uh, 802.11ac um, for enterprise Wi-Fi routers, but it's especially important for outdoor um, high-frequency applications because if you think about um, what we were talking about earlier with the uh, frequency you know, not uh, traveling a great distance, um, when you bear that in mind, you want to try and focus um, your available um, output power, if you will, your amplitude of your wave in as tight a direction as you can, because there's regulatory legal requirements that uh, define how much power you can um, spit out of an access point in total for each one of these bands. So you need to make sure, especially for the millimeter wave stuff, that it's um, directed to the you know client of interest um, with as fine grain as possible using a beamforming antenna, essentially. Just at a high level, what is beamforming doing for me? Um, so if you think about um, like a traditional, like a donut-shaped, you know, wireless coverage for say a Wi-Fi access point, beamforming would be um, essentially taking taking that coverage model that we have today, um, throwing it out and replacing it with um, a very um, tight directional beam targeted to okay. the subscriber that I want to talk to at that point in time. So rather than the, that energy being spread omnidirectional, I'm taking all that energy and focusing it so that I can uh, better quality, further distance, et cetera, because I've, I've directionalized the energy. Yes, exactly. Okay, well, actually, that's an interesting question. You're saying I require beamforming and energy focus just to get the distances you were talking about, a kilometer for the 60 gigahertz range, roughly five kilometers or less for the 28 gigahertz range. So does that mean, uh, I was thinking, I'll just throw more energy at the problem, you know, crank up superpowers to handle this thing, you know, more signal mm -hmm. strength or, you know, maybe use, uh, you know, some big insane antenna to try to, you know, pull the signal in if it's been attenuated too much. Uh, are either of those plausible solutions to this? So in general, there's uh, there's pretty tight regulatory controls, especially for licensed bands, on the power output that you're able to essentially use from a given uh, base station or a subscriber. So you've got a couple of reasons for that, as in interference, as in even if it's a licensed band, let's say the guy in the channel next to you, um, no radio transmission is completely clean, if you will. 
if you look at it on a spectrum analyzer and you're looking at what you think is a 20 megahertz signal, you'll typically still see um, what we call skirts kind of um, sloping off from the sides, which can potentially impact neighboring channels. Um, so the higher you crank up the power, the worse those skirts tend to be. And so their power limits are in place to help interference in that sense, and also some for safety reasons. <laughs> you're reminding me of my shortwave days. That was the super powerful signals that would really, you know, you're trying to hear some small signal and then somebody that's super powerful is broadcasting and they're just spilling all over, even though they're an adjacent channel, uh, which could be very frustrating. And this is just happening, you know, higher up from what you're saying, right? So, so okay, yeah. obviously limits on power because you're going to be causing interference if you, uh, if you don't do that. And uh, that, that, that makes sense. Also, another another reason for some of the power limitations, regulatory tends to decrease the power before you would get to this point, but um, there's also really a limit on how high you could theoretically or you know physically even bump up the power in a given radio design before you start introducing um, a lot of distortion, which is would be counterproductive to your you know ultimate goal of getting better bandwidth. So there's also physical constraints as well as you know safety and um, you know interference concerns. There's constraints within the device um, construction itself, you know the circuits and the components as well. You say distortion. Interesting, because I was uh, when I record audio. If you over record, you uh, you you can record only so loud, and then you get into clipping, where the top of the waveform is actually flattened because you've gone as loud as you can go. And now you've got a flat spot at the top, and it sounds uh, you've lost a lot of bits there. They're just gone, and it, it comes through as a, as a garbled sound, a very harsh sound. A similar sort of a thing we're talking about. Yeah, and you can imagine that um, you know with your audio recording, I mean that is a fairly simple you know waveform compared to a lot of the you know the high order, high bandwidth uh, modulation schemes that we can be talking about here, um, which can be very sensitive to any kind of you know noise or distortion. So obviously you want to take out as much of that as you possibly can. So what about uh, a great big antenna? Uh, I guess you're, now I'm thinking about my antenna theory days back when I was uh, doing a little bit of this work. I know shortwave antennas, because of the length of the wave, you needed big, long antennas and uh, to, to bring that signal in. And then the higher up the spectrum you go, like when I was capturing uh, things that were more local in the, you know, the megahertz range, I, I have, I still have a omnidirectional antenna on my roof that's quite a bit smaller that is very capable of bringing those in. Do the antennas get even smaller if we're talking about millimeter wave? Absolutely. I mean, um, if you think of, you know, even, for instance, you know, one of the 5 or 2.4 gigahertz um, radios that we have today, you may not think that that antenna size is much to worry about because that's the kind of size that we're used to. But if you look at something like 60 gigahertz, I mean, there's that, um, you, you kind of alluded to it, there's a, an inverse relationship between frequency and antenna size. So as I increase the frequency, particularly up to something like 60 gigahertz, my antenna size dr decreases dramatically. Um, I have a 60 gigahertz um, home Wi-Fi router, essentially, and the um, uh, antenna array for that, it's not even a single array, it's a, it's a beamforming array, as I was kind of talking a little bit about earlier, is basically the size of a postage stamp. Um, so mm. it would be possible, potentially, to bump up the antenna size. What you'll typically find is that for these millimeter wave frequencies to get um, you know, an adequate beamforming antenna array, I say array because it's, it is uh, you know, potentially... Um, hundreds of individual antennas in a, a steerable grid, essentially. Whilst you would be able to fit more of those in to the same size as a 5 or 2.4 gigahertz antenna, you still do run into challenges when trying to make it much physically larger than that to try and bump up the gain. There are options to increase the gain, but you know, putting something like a giant satellite dish is 
unlikely to yield much benefit in terms of the overall range. There's also a, a challenge with the, the the tower antenna and that array and the power versus what the client can generate too. If I'm understanding this, it would be possible to hear the tower, but not be but the tower not be able to hear me. Right. So that's that's another problem you potentially introduce. You know, if you had on a tower an absolutely gigantic um, antenna array that could focus a beam, say, you know, half a degree wide, half a degree tall, and then, you know, directly focus it down to the client, the client may not be able to, with its smaller antenna array, you know, form a narrow enough beam to get that corresponding range to talk back to the access point. So then you've Kind of what's the point of that uh, that range, right, you know? Right. Okay, so we can't crank up the signal strength. Where there's regulations for good reasons. There's distortion anyway, even if we you know tried it. You can't just make a bigger antenna to, to try to haul in the signal. That doesn't work because of uh, the antenna theory we just talked about. What about like uh, cell repeater technology? I mean, I remember certain places I've been in where coverage from the tower was poor. Um, the carrier may come in and do a, a cell repeater just to cover a, a local campus or a building, something like that. Is there a, an option there that might help with um, you know, a broadband deployment? Yeah, I, th- I think absolutely there is. So this kind of goes back to something I alluded to a little bit earlier about we'll need to use different deployment models for these higher frequencies than we do today for our traditional um, kind of carrier macro cell coverage, if you will. So my um, model of choice for the 5G millimeter wave frequency um, deployments is something more akin to a micro pop or a micro point of presence, where essentially a service provider or a carrier would have a higher number of um smaller base stations positioned closer to their subscribers or their clients. Um, So they could get them closer to their clients by either using, say, a local fiber connection or a microwave backhaul connection, potentially. But they'll need to be physically located much closer to the end subscribers or the end users. If you think about, um, just to take your example of a business park, for example, um, whereas today you could potentially cover a business park from, say, five kilometers away with a, you know, a five gigahertz access point mounted on the top of a water tower, because his signal will propagate far enough that he can get decent throughput to all of those um, you know, companies in the business park, you'd have to look at, for these higher frequencies, um, a model where, for instance, you could put, um, say, maybe fiber to one building in the business park and then put a 60 or 28 gigahertz um, access point or base station on his roof and then use him essentially as your local uh, micro point of presence. Um, so that's more of the deployment model that uh, these technologies look to follow, particularly for fixed deployments that would be used for you know, things like rural broadband or business broadband. Okay. So, and, and would a, would a micro pop like this, as you described, would that be fairly low cost compared to standing up a full tower and, you know, doing the physical fiber backhaul that would be required from the tower and so on, where it's plausible that the service providers are going to do exactly this? Yeah, I I believe it is. It really depends on the um, average revenue per user, of course, that the service provider can expect to get from that micropop. I mean, the downside of the micropop model is that um, by its smaller scale, you're most likely going to be getting a smaller number of users on that access point. But then the hope is that with the higher um, throughputs and data rates that you can expect from these uh, millimeter wave technologies at shorter ranges, that you can, instead of charging a business, you know, say, I don't know, $200 a month, let's say, for example, for a 50 megabit service, maybe you can charge them $500 a month for a gigabit service, and then you can make up your investment that way. Ah, but then uh, kind of going back to our rural broadband question, the customer density for such a thing is going to make that less likely that a microcell would be deployed for, say, a a village that uh, is far off the beaten path. 
Because there's just not enough customers that would make that cost model work. Yeah, so some parts um, of the country and, and really just worldwide, um, I can see would still be primarily covered by um, either cellular technologies that we have today. You know, for instance, people just having an LTE connection and that's that's their only internet connection. Um, or people using um, what we see a lot of coverage in the US, particularly in the rural areas, is, is of um, 2.4, 3 and 5 gigahertz um, fixed wireless access networks, which are basically kind of a middle ground between this micropop model and the, the big scale carrier macro cell model. Mm. Um, so they would have, for instance, a 5 gigahertz access point, say, you know, 10 kilometers out, um, which is able to cover, say, two villages with satisfactory bandwidth, and then they can recoup their investment that way. But um, I think in the future, in the coming years, as we see um, average bandwidth usage increasing and fiber continuing to spread, if not into rural communities, but closer to them, you know, if you could get a fiber tail close enough to a you know semi-rural or rural com- community that would be willing to pay, for example, say a 28 gigahertz service, if you could get that fiber tail within five kilometers of them, that could still be a viable business case for the uh, service provider. Well, okay, let's say I was close enough. I was in that scenario and I was able to leverage uh, 5G service for data. Then how much throughput could I actually get out of that? I, I know we're still talking about multiple bands, there's a 60 and a 28 that keep coming up. What's my bits per second I can pull down? This is really, it ends up being dependent on, you know, the exact radio equipment and a, a, a list of asterisks as, uh, as long as my arm. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's not only is it networking, it's wireless networking. So I think mm-hmm. the list gets even longer. But um, essentially what uh, what I've been really thinking is, uh, is viable is both from a technical and a business standpoint would be for um, 60 gigahertz um, for the ranges which it's able to cover. You know, think of like a business park primarily or a more of a uh, an urban area or even a suburban area would be capable of providing either 100 megabit or gigabit um, internet packages, of course, gigabit being preferable um, for, you know, varying grades of um, cost to the end user. Um, 28 gigahertz probably is looking for somewhere, again, in the same range between um, 100 megabits per second to 500 megabits per second, potentially up to a gigabit. Excuse me, but I would expect probably 60 gigahertz to be more of the model for a maybe a business park where you've got a tighter clustered number of um, customers who are likely to pay more for that higher bandwidth. And then a 28 gigahertz model, maybe you could say to the home user, you know, 100 megabits connection is probably more than uh, satisfactory for the next few years for most people. Would this be deployed as a uh, synchronous kind of service where up speed, uh, upload and download speeds are the same? That's what I would expect from particularly the you know, business level um, service, and also really from again, it depends on how the also how then how the ISP wants to allocate you know their upstream bandwidth, their agreement with you know their peering partners and X Y Z. But my my hope would be that um, for these higher um, bandwidth services, particularly when they're backhauled by fiber connections, and with the changing usage patterns that we see of you know people um, also uploading more data than they used to, um, that we see more of a symmetrical uh, bandwidth arrangement. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that the number of people that are on a cell, or I guess the number of subscriber endpoints, can impact throughput because you're you're basically creating one big uh, network, which is which is a concern people doing enterprise Wi-Fi have. You know, how many clients? What's my client to access point ratio? Part of the design consideration. Um, so does that factor into the the throughput I'm getting here? If if there's a lot of people subscribed and uh, and hitting a tower, is my throughput going to go down? Just to kind of kind of step back from that a little bit. So fundamentally, all wireless networks are essentially using a shared medium. You know, we have that shared 
wireless spectrum and the number of users that connect to that network on that same channel and are actively operating will decrease the average throughput of you know subsequent users that uh, that connect or ones that were previously connected one interesting thing that does impact this which looks to definitely be a part of 5g networking technologies and actually is a part now of the 802.11 ac uh, wave 2 products that we see particularly in the enterprise wi-fi deployments is multi-user mimo so mimo is multiple input multiple output um, which is typically used today for um, providing a single client a higher capacity data stream, essentially. Um, you can send data on a vertical polarized wave and on a horizontally polarized wave, in theory, um, doubling the throughput or sending the same data twice for redundancy purposes. So what we do in MU-MIMO, the multi-user part, is that you could be sending potentially to two clients at the same time um, individual streams of data. So that potentially does help with the theoretical maximum throughput in that um, a single client is unlikely, as in Wi-Fi, to be using the entire wireless interface mm. capability at a given point in time. So the more users you can service on average, the faster your average throughput for that cell is. Yeah, yeah. if people are on, on and off the air quickly, if they, they have a, a quick bursty thing, you know, downloading a web page as opposed to streaming Netflix, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's going to, that multi-user is going to help e- even more. Um, cause you again, quick bursts versus sustained constant. I'm on the air pulling in data. Yes. And then you can see from the, from the multi-user aspect, if you had that one user who was streaming video and you had a bunch of guys who are hopping on and off, just doing kind of transactional data, like email and web traffic, you can see that, um, if you had, you know, your one of your MU MIMO streams just dedicated to this HD video stream, you potentially don't have to interrupt his connection every time you need to service one of these transactional guys and they're not waiting you know with the traditional kind of wi-fi timeout just taking wi-fi as an example to explain mu mimo um, they're not waiting to have him finish before they can jump on that kind of contention-based access that wi-fi uses is not something that we will see um, in the 5g technologies themselves um, or to at least to a great extent i should say um, for instance lte has a a basic level of contention-based access but it's really for network entry rather than ongoing data transmission. So the the cellular carrier technologies that we're talking about for 5G and even those for fixed access as opposed to Wi-Fi are typically using a synchronized um, media access control method as opposed to the contention-based um, one that's used in Wi-Fi. So there's less there's less chance of, you know, a guy is already transmitting and I try and transmit at the same time. You know, the access point um, in these cellular technologies and these fixed wireless technologies as opposed to Wi-Fi um, controls that much more tightly rather than having a contention-based system. So he knows when uh, subscriber X is going to transmit, when the other guy needs to transmit, and it's much more um, tightly handled with better timing than in Wi-Fi. Hmm. Well, okay. So we've, we've talked about a lot of stuff here, Alex. And, and I think you know the conclusion that I'm coming to as we've been chatting is it, it really does sound like rural broadband, it, it's a bad fit for millimeter wave 5G we got the signal attenuation problem is a big one. You know, the, the small size of cells and you know, the challenge of trying to deploy enough microcells in a cost-effective way for the carriers means I don't think we're going to see a lot of investment on their part uh, in, in the most case. Um, you got a line of sight requirement there. Uh, all right. It, so, bummer. My, uh, my vision of the future world where, yes, I can live in the sticks and 5G is going to save me is is not coming to reality. <laughs> but but is there any sort of a benefit a, a rural dweller might see from uh, 5 gig tech? 
Um, I think I think there absolutely is. So just to cover the the millimeter wave stuff, and then a little bit on um, some of the low band stuff that will be developed with five G as well. I know I've been focusing more on the millimeter wave side of things, but there is also some developments in um, sub six gigahertz things as well that may uh, provide more of a benefit for rural use. Um, but just to cover off the millimeter wave side of things, so sixty gigahertz. Um, I think you're right for the rural use case. I'm expecting the majority of um, sixty gigahertz deployments to be in um, urban or even suburban areas and you know, the kind of business park deployment model because of the density and the shorter distance um, needed by the uh, propagation. 28 gigahertz, I think, could see some deployment in what I call like semi-rural and semi-urban and um, places where you could potentially either get a microwave wireless backhaul link to put the 28 gigahertz access point within range of a decent number of subscribers, or you can, you know, pull out fiber tail um, out to that range. So, okay, so microwave backhaul as opposed to having to have a, a piece of fiber trenched. Yes, yes. So you, so um, you can you can buy um, quite high bandwidth, uh, multiple gigabit per second microwave um, kind of point to point links today that are also used for some um, uh, cell tower backhaul as well. So you may be able to deploy it with one of those. But again, it comes back to how many subscribers can I capture in this area with this investment, and then really back into the carrier's own you know uh, business model and their criteria for investment. But um, just on the six gigahertz and below side of things, so there are some uh, movements in that area. Whether or not we'll see something to replace LTE in 5G, that's kind of up in the air at the moment. But um, there is definitely the potential for, if not you know, uh, carrier-deployed standards-based systems, then certainly um, some proprietary systems based on um, 5 gigahertz and 3 gigahertz, possibly 2.4 gigahertz, but that band is very crowded. That may provide um, considerably more benefit due to their range to rural customers than some of the millimeter wave stuff. So there's there's a lot of um, development going on in that side of things, but um, it's it's really being fleshed out at the moment. Now, in that 6 gigahertz and down, it, it sounds like that may not be a market that the major carriers we think of uh, are, are interested in, but maybe a WISP would be interested in that and you know, building out their own business, or how, how would I interpret that? Yeah, that's particularly for a fixed deployment, like your your home broadband, you probably want over a, uh, a fixed uh, wireless connection for the, um, you know, really just better performance as opposed to trying to jump on the LTE network with your, you know, other mobile devices in the area. So yeah, I would I would put it more at the feet of the, the rural and semi-rural WISP. Um, I know we've got, you know, many, many hundreds of them in the US, for example, and across the world. I'm expecting it to be more of them deploying it as they are today with existing, um, you know, five gig and below technologies than the major carriers. I mean, the, the, the revenue in terms of a fixed wireless access network, as I call it, compared to you know the, the mobile revenue that the carriers are able to get and the investment required to compete in the mobile area is just, at least for the initial few years of 5G deployment, I see taking up most of the investment and kind of mind share of the carriers rather than addressing the mm. comparatively small you know rural fixed use case. They got to go where the density is to recoup their investment in infrastructure as quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what what role does the government play in all of this then? We've mentioned the FCC, we've mentioned regulatory control and various things. How does the government factor into uh, 5G? So there's uh, there's a lot of government programs um, across the world um, aimed at improving 
you know, 5G readiness, being trying to be the first country to be 5G, you know, enabled and all these kind of things. Ofcom from the UK recently, uh, I think today, just announced a, a new spectrum plan, for instance, for 5G. Um, as you mentioned, the FCC has made a lot of moves recently with the 28 and uh, 60 gigahertz bands and trying to um, prompt um, investment and uh, deployment in those bands. Um, some of the other com- uh, sorry, some of the other countries looking to uh, fast forward this deployment are South Korea for the 2018 Olympics and Japan for the 2020 Olympics. Um, Singapore is also making um, some moves in the area to try and uh, be a regional leader in 5G. Essentially, they're very similar at the moment to a lot of the um, 4G government programs that we've seen in the past, where it's general, um, how can the government um, enable investment in these bands? How can they aid deployment and how can they try and push carriers into things you know, like uh, service obligations and coverage obligations and things like that? But um, I think there'll be... Uh, distinguished from the traditional programs that governments have typically had. For instance, in the UK, there's a requirement that, you know, the carriers carriers must provide uh, coverage to, um, you know, 9, 9x percent of the population with their services by this date. Whereas um, with these uh, millimeter wave 5G technologies, um, I think it's most likely that these will be deployed in what I think of a, a model of islands as opposed to a giant um, continent of coverage. So you'll have you know, a small 28 gig cell, a small 60 gig cell. So I don't think the governments will push kind of a universal service obligation, if you will, for the millimeter wave 5G side of things um, onto the carriers because just, just the economics and you know, the physical constraints of actually doing that are prohibitive. Not saying you 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 guys have to do this. Just you know, allowing them to deploy as as finances make reasonable. Yeah, yeah. You you can imagine that you know something like if they if they said okay, you know, uh, between AT and T, Verizon, and Sprint, let's say for example, you have to provide you know coverage to ninety seven percent of the U.S. population. If you had a band like seven hundred megahertz, you can see even just from a perspective of the physics that we talked about, that's a lot more feasible than trying to do it with oh, yeah. say sixty gigahertz. Right? It's simply <laughs> yep. not going to happen. Well, Alex, this has been a great conversation. I have learned a lot, and I'm assuming everyone that's listening learned a lot as well. So I'm bummed out about the answer, but the reason is <laughs> physics at the end of the day. So I, I get it. Um, and, and one more time, I know you mentioned it at the top uh, of the show, but if you would let folks know how they can follow you, uh, read your stuff, etc. Sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at, uh, at NetworkArch, um, A-R-C-H, 2020. Uh, on Twitter, and uh, my website is networkarchitecture2020.com. Thanks once again, Alex, for joining us today on the Packet Pushers Priority Q. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter, and of course, Packet Pushers has a whole host of podcasts that you can listen to, along with our community blog, and we have a news feed. We do cover the industry heavily, and you can find all of that for free at packetpushers.net. Thanks for listening to the show today. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. We're also up on LinkedIn. You can like us on Facebook. Rate us on iTunes if you would. We'd really appreciate that. Last but not least, remember that too much technology would never be enough. <laughs>